All right, you guys, so this is the Q&A show at scotthorton.org slash show. And um, basically, it's me answering your questions from the Reddit room, the um, paid donors to this site by way of PayPal or Patreon or what have you. Anybody who donates five bucks a month or more and you get access to the Reddit room, that's r slash show. And every once in a while, it's been about half a year. Um, sorry about that, guys. Uh, I do one of these, and so I've been, I posted a thing up in the Reddit room a few days ago asking people to go ahead and fill in their questions. We have quite a few. And on the line, of course, I've got Pete Quinones. I don't really pronounce that U, right? It's more like a K, Quinones. Um, yeah, it's a K. And he is, uh, of course, a managing editor of the Libertarian Institute and uh, is an ear for me to bend while I'm sitting here answering your, your uh, answering your questions so I don't just feel like some freak alone in a room. Uh, so, hi, Pete. How are you, sir? Doing good, man. What's going on? I'm doing good. Sorry for putting that cue in there. I I heard somebody say your name, and I thought, oh, that's right. It is really just more like a K sound than a, a well, Q-U. The first, so. the first syllable is pronounced keen like K-E-E-N. Mm-hmm. Quinones. And, oh, and then you go into the... Then you go into the Quinones. Oh, now I need a fucking Enya in there, huh? All right, you're yeah, killing yeah, me yeah, here, yeah. pal. I can't do that. That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't expect. Well, I actually do expect people from Texas to fucking know how to pronounce it. Quinones. <laughs> Quinones. Quinones. All right, I'm working on it. So that was question one. How do you say Pete's name? Quinones. Is that all right? Is that close? <laughs> yeah. And I'll uh, I'll edit out my little. Uh, my little curse there unless is this <laughs> private or what are we gonna do here ah who cares it'll be fine all right no problem i'm sorry a million sorries <laughs> i have the word whore in my last name but at least it's not spelled right <laughs> so there's a bunch of questions we have here obviously we're not gonna be able to get to all of them someone's asking for a book update i think it's uh cpt pete caesar saying Book update. Let's get it. Yeah. Man, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> I admit this virus thing, it hasn't changed my life. Everybody else is like home from work and catching up on stuff, but I already worked at home anyway, and now I just have even more to do. And um, I admit that I have not been making progress in the past few weeks here, but uh, I can also promise you that I am getting cracking tomorrow morning. And I plan on working every day for, you know, the next six days straight. Fridays, I record interviews. But I already said I want my wife to collect the maybe five most important virus stories of the day for me to read at night. But other than that, I'm blocking it out and I'm writing my history book. Chapter one is done. You've read it. And um, that's, you know, Carter through Clinton. I'm probably overwriting the Iraq War II chapter right now. I'm just going to kind of have a filler essay for Afghanistan and refer people to that book. I'm going to try to underdo that topic and get to the real heart of the problem in Iraq War II and the aftermath of that. And then, you know, the first draft is written. The whole thing is done. Um, It's just a matter of getting the prose right and getting all the footnotes filled in. And, you know, I admit I'm obsessive to a fault. I'll spend weeks on a footnote. Um you know, and um, and I, I do overdo all of that. You know, for years, I was the guy who put all those links in Justin's articles. I don't know if people really know that or not, but 
for like 10 years, that was my job was filling Justin's article with way too many links. And um, that's just how I am. And I, I feel like, you know, the burden of proof is on me to show that I'm right about all this stuff. And especially because I'm not a veteran and I'm not a real reporter who went to the wars or anything like that. I'm not really reporting any of this stuff to you firsthand. I'm synthesizing other people's information as best as I can. And so I feel like I, I really owe it to everybody to have too many footnotes for every single thing to just prove everything to the nth degree. And, you know, frankly, every compliment I ever got about the Afghanistan book said, well, he sure does prove his case. All right. I <laughs> can't argue with that. And so, you know, I, this was supposed to be an easier, briefer kind of a take, but it's just too hard for me to make an assertion without proving it all the way as best as I possibly can. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a poor job. I'm confessing to you, Pete. I'm doing a very poor job at splitting the difference there. Um, I think you can already see that from the chapter one that you've read. It's what, 50,000 words or something. That's just chapter one. So at some point, 80, some of that's got to go. 82 or 83 pages. <laughs> Yeah, some of that's going to have to go. 82 or 83 pages, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's really bad. But um, I don't know. But I'm I'm getting cracking on it. I'm, I apologize to everyone who took it seriously when I was trying to convince myself I could get it done by the winter. And it's just no way. Once I get... I just write too slow. It's too hard. Um, you know, I, I wrote an essay... Um, about uh oh you read it the um why the cold war with russia is all america's fault but it was a mm. speech so i didn't have to put any links in it i didn't have to prove it i was just going off of what i already knew and yeah i did a little bit of research while i was writing it but essentially it was what i already knew and man i just cranked that thing out it's like i don't know ten thousand words or something it's really long but i wrote that thing in one day and it was so easy when you don't have to stop and find the best footnote for every single thing I can actually write pretty quick, but writing this book is, is something else. Um, and, you know, it's it's really weird, too, right? There's so much going on right now currently. It, it just feels weird to be writing about three wars ago, uh, you know, but that's what people need. This is This is the real turning point in history here. We need a good book that says this is the history of our horrible, effed-up terror war that we never should have fought. And so anyway, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I hope to have it done by August. That was when Fool's Aaron came out was in August of 2017. So that'll that's my deadline now is I'm going to try to have every last bit of it done. And I mean done, done, edited a million times over and ready for publication by then. I'm going to do everything I can to get that knocked out for you. So that's about all I can say. All right, this question is from Wood Scraps that I think it's I believe that's AJ. Yeah. Thoughts thoughts on increased prospects for a US China war after the pandemic. And I think this is a great question. It's so timely and you know, we haven't gotten to the point yet where people are going to start pointing fingers at China, but I mean it's it's coming. Yeah. Well, and there is some responsibility. You know, I saw on Twitter today, there was a clip going around from 60 Minutes Australia talking about how President Xi decided to go ahead and hold the Chinese Lunar New Year celebration and let, you know, 5 million people come to Wuhan province and then leave again in the middle of this thing. 
without any kind of policing and clamp down and fever checks of any kind. And so people, in fact, the lady they're interviewing says, you know, you can compare this to the Muslim Hajj uh, once a year or whatever. There's no bigger holiday celebration anywhere in the world. This is the ultimate thing, the Chinese New Year. And now the people then, you know, went back from all over the world and and took this thing with them. That's how it got to Italy. And um, that's how it got to South Korea and to Singapore and all these other places. And millions of people, five million something people were allowed to just leave from the hot zone. Um, and how, you know, there is a lot of responsibility there. I think this always was a plausible case. The first article we ran at the Institute by Zach Sorensen about the virus back three weeks ago or four weeks ago said that he thought there was a very good chance that this thing escaped from the lab. And I don't know if you saw this clip, the Wuhan uh, germ lab there, but it's been you know pretty widely debunked already by Chinese sources that the thing had come from the wet market. Didn't look like that was really the case. It had spread there, but it seemed to have... Um, predated that and um, Tucker Carlson was pointing out that they ran all these studies debunking the accusation that this was a biological weapon and they said that yeah you know this if you were making a biological weapon you wouldn't have a novel virus you would do it with you know you would weaponize the flu somehow or some other virus that already has evolved to attack human beings and this kind of thing yeah but nobody ever said anything about a weapon nobody or you know, maybe Tom Cotton or some goofball had said that, but that wasn't the accusation. The accusation was that someone at the research laboratory had gotten infected and spread it from there. And, you know, there's some speculation that it's this missing woman uh, who was, you know, one of the doctors there and that maybe she was the one. And I don't know if that's really true or not, but that was always a reasonable speculation that this was an accident that came out of a Chinese government laboratory. And so there's certainly a responsibility there. But then the question is, what are we going to do about it? We can't have a war with China. They have hydrogen bombs. Okay? We can never fight China ever, ever. They have hydrogen bombs. Okay? Thermonukes. That means they could kill all of Los Angeles with one shot. Okay? Megatons. So, forget that. And so what are we going to do? Put sanctions on them? Pick a trade war with them? Have a big fight of what nature and to what end? There are no good responses there. If private people want to, you know, shop Taiwanese and buy South Korean instead of Chinese goods from now on and that kind of thing, well, that's fully within their right if they got hard feelings and that's how they feel about it. Um, you know, whether the Americans can encourage them to shut down their wet markets where these things tend to spread and, and have come out of in the past, uh, whether we convince them, can convince them to make any kind of reparations to the people who've been damaged by this, you know, I don't know. At least make changes going forward to make sure that, you know, send the Swiss or the Americans or whoever's the best at germ containment in research laboratories to help them go over their procedures so that this doesn't happen again, things like that. Otherwise, we're talking about a seventh of the world's population and yes, under the control of an authoritarian dictatorship. And we share this planet with them, our civilization and theirs, and we're going to continue to, we have to. And so, um, 
It's just like the situation with the Russians. For that matter, it's just the same as the situation with the so-called Muslim world. This is a seventh of the population of the planet. And, you know, it's a different civilization than ours, but they're human beings just like we are. And we're going to be living with them and sharing this world with them forever. And so, you know, we just got to figure out how to do it right and, and how to not pick a fight, how to resolve this in some way that, you know, where accommodations can be made, where we give them enough room to do the right thing and save a little bit of face and move forward. I'm going to move on to let's get away from coronavirus. T. Scott 26.2 that must be a marathoner. How close is Haftar to taking Libya and why is Turkey so invested in intervening in Libya? Oh, good question. So I think Haftar is nowhere near taking the capital city. I mean, in distance, he may be closer than before. But there's plenty of uh, resistance to him in Tripoli, and he has not had the ability to do it. He's now being backed by the Russians. I don't know if the Americans still back him or not. I guess the common understanding is the CIA put him there, but then they don't like him anymore because he doesn't do what he's told. And so uh, now he has the backing of the Russians. Now, the Turks are there because the Turks backed the Muslim Brotherhood. And that was why they supported the revolution along with the Qataris um, in Egypt in 2011. And um, so the Muslim Brotherhood has, you know, it's interesting. In the war, the secularists of the Qaddafi regime were in the West, in Tripoli, and all the Islamists were coming out of um, Derna and Benghazi in the east of the country. But now it's the secularists based out of the East who are fighting the Islamists who'd taken over the capital. And so, and there are a lot of different factions in the capital. It's not one government, you know, really. It's a bunch of different armed militias. And, you know, the Americans and the UN had tried to create this, you know, transitional government of national reconciliation, or I forgot what they called it. Um, and then it had this singular distinction of not having any support from anybody when it was supposed to be the compromise regime between the two biggest factions. And, you know, Haftar is apparently intent on taking Tripoli by force. And yet, I admit, I have not kept up with the latest out of there in at least a good six or eight weeks. But the last I'd heard, he had, you know, attacked the airport, but had been driven back and had done some shelling, but it was still, you know, far outside of the capital. So if things have changed substantially since then, I'm sorry that I missed it. It's it's um, I admit I I um, have not been keeping track of the latest out of Libya very well this year at all. But um, I have no reason to believe that uh, even, you know, with Russian help or whatever, that he'll be able to take the capital. And I guess now that you have the Turkish troops there backing the Islamist government in Tripoli, that'll make it that much harder for him. Which just goes to show how crazy Erdogan is with all the problems that he's got going on right now that he's sending troops off to fight in North Africa. Um, you know, he's certainly undermining his own position. Troops, and he's got troops in Somalia, too. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know that Turkey had troops in Somalia. Yeah, I was talking to somebody who uh, I had someone on my podcast who was stationed in Somalia doing um, psyops there. And yeah, 
the turkey is one of the biggest presences there. And backing the government in Mogadishu? Not back. Um, trying to remember. It was an episode from like six months ago. Huh. Maybe we just edit this out. No, that'll be all right. <laughs> it don't matter. We'll go back and check and, and goes to show, man. I'm, I'm behind on Somalia, too. I definitely need to catch up with that. I know that the African Union is there, you know, backed by the United States in, you know, trying to oppose al-Shabaab and backing the government in Mogadishu there. But I don't know. Whatever side we're on, Erdogan seems to be on the opposite side at least half the time. I'll look at that episode and um, go to that point and drop a time time code for it so that people can jump right to it on my podcast. Cool, man. uh, That's a good idea. I'll reach out. I'll reach out to um, the gentleman I was talking to, and uh, and get some get a little more information. Cool. All right. So um, this one's pretty easy. From Heat Colonel, Afghanistan update post withdrawal agreement. Well, it's just a freaking disaster, man. Um, just like all along, every election that they've held for the presidency has been a hoax. In '04. They just faked it and pretended that Karzai won. They didn't even really let anyone oppose him. And they were going around threatening to murder people if they wouldn't vote for him. Vote Karzai or we'll burn your house down was a headline out of the BBC News back then. In 2009, Obama tried to rig the election against Karzai, but then Karzai rigged it for himself better and won anyway. Uh, So that sure didn't help with America's relationship there. And then he finally left power after the election of 2014, which didn't even take place out in the countryside at all. It was just, you know, in a a few cities in the north. And at that time, uh, Ashraf Ghani, who is the current president, supposedly, I guess, um, claimed that he won. And his opponent, Abdullah Abdullah, claimed that he won. And pretty sure if I remember right, it's Abdullah is the sock puppet of General Dostum, who had been the general in the communist army and is was guilty of the war crimes of the Afghan massacre in November 2001, where they machine gunned and suffocated all those Taliban captives in their, um, you know, metal storage containers and recently had to flee to Turkey for a little while because he had his men hold down and rape one of his political opponents with the barrel of an AK-47. And so rather than facing the law, he just went to Turkey on vacation for a little while and came back. He was still vice president and defense minister, Dostum, um, or had been defense minister and then was vice president in the government that America created here for these people, this communist butcher, warlord, rapist. And um, so Abdullah Abdullah is his guy. And in 2014, they both claimed victory, and Abdullah tried to kill Ghani with a truck bomb, which failed. And then John Kerry came in and essentially scrapped the Constitution and invented a new office, the CEO of Afghanistan, and made Abdullah accept that as some kind of co-presidency. But then Ghani quickly marginalized him. He never really was co-president. Ghani never really shared power with him. And so then last year, they held another election. And again, it was a travesty of a vote, nothing like you would 
accept as a legitimate election in America, where the entire South and East of the country were completely shut out, had no say in it at all. And um, again, it's Ghani versus Abdullah. And this time, Abdullah refused to accept his secondary role as chief executive officer and went ahead and had himself sworn in at the exact same time as Ghani. And they showed it on Afghan TV with split screens as both of these guys were inaugurating themselves as president at the same time. And so here the Americans made this deal with the Taliban that, okay, we'll get out if you guys promise that you will, one, keep Al-Qaeda and them down, and two, you'll negotiate with the current government. And that's some, that's a big deal. The Taliban had always said, no, the current government is nothing but a bunch of sock puppets who belong to foreigners, and they're not even legitimate at all. And so, no, we will not negotiate with them. But, you know, Trump and, and um, Khalilzad got them to agree to negotiate with the government. And then as soon as they agree to that, the government splits in half and may not survive at all. And leaves them no one to negotiate with. So, so far, they the two sides have not gone to war in Kabul yet. But I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But the parliamentary democracy that George Bush promised and that, you know, Barack Obama doubled the war in order to create there has completely failed. The whole project is a, a disaster. And... And the only question, I think, is whether the Taliban are going to march into Kabul and take it for themselves after we leave or whether they'll let good enough be enough and will maybe just, you know, seize and, and keep control over the predominantly Pashtun parts of the country and, you know, have their autonomy and allow the others to have their autonomy so they can still live in one Afghanistan, but with you know, severe federal divisions between the major power factions there, or whether, you know, possibly they'll be able to negotiate some sort of peaceful resolution and power sharing deal. It sure doesn't seem likely to me that the Taliban are willing to join the current government and sit in its parliament and share power in regular elections with these guys. I don't mean, I can't know the future, but it sure doesn't seem like they have any reason to do that when they don't have to. Um, one hopeful note is something that Matthew Ho has said on the show, which is that when the Taliban took Kabul back in 1996, it was with the full support of the United States government, the Bill Clinton government, along with the Saudis and the Pakistanis backing them and helping them do it. And the Clintons were clear on the record. We want the Taliban to not negotiate with Massoud and the Northern Alliance. We want them to win an outright unconditional surrender and defeat of the Northern Alliance to create a single monopoly state power in that country so that they can guarantee the security for the pipeline that was to run from Turkmenistan down to the port of Karachi, which the whole thing was a stupid pipe dream anyway. Um, but uh, this time, presumably, they won't have that. The Pakistanis have backed them all along to prevent the Indians' friends in the Tajiks and the, I guess, the Uzbek groups from you know forming a full monopoly power over the state so they've had an interest in keeping the taliban in play there but i don't see any reason why the pakistanis should be hell-bent on supporting them taking the capital city and particularly if the americans are leaning on them to not help the taliban 
outright take the capital city. But then again, you know, it's not that the Pakistanis control them entirely. They just support them. So I don't know if they can stop them, but they can just choose not to, um, you know, not to help them go that far. So that would be a good reason for the Taliban to go ahead and negotiate with their rivals and come up with a peaceful solution. I th it's got to be said that the people of Afghanistan, virtually all of them, are sick and tired of war at this point. All of the violence and all of the grief and nobody getting nowhere after all this time. And so, and you know, Gubaldine Hekmachar is an old man now. He's not the, you know, throat-slitting monster that Ronald Reagan once backed. He's retired mostly and has brought his militia in and apparently mostly disarmed them and is participating in the government there. So, you know, I don't know. I'd hate to be hopeful, um, but it seems like I guess the good news is that nobody, I don't think, really has the power to take over the whole country. And so maybe once the Americans leave, the different warring factions can just call time out and figure out how to get along short of war from there. But that comes with a big shrug. You know, as I say in the book, just leave and don't look back. It's not going to be better. It's just going to be no longer our responsibility. I know you don't watch a lot of TV shows, but are you aware of the TV show Homeland? I've heard of it before, but no, I've never seen it. This season, it's the last season they're doing. It's season eight. Well, first of all, they admitted, um, they've admitted in interviews that they, when they want help with storylines, they just go to Langley. And Langley feeds them stories. And no surprise. This whole, yeah, this whole last season is about Afghanistan. The American president negotiates a uh, peace treaty, goes there to to sign it, and gets shot down in a helicopter with the president of Afghanistan, and they both die. It's it, it's some of the best propaganda you've ever seen, man. If you, if you get it, if you if you want to just get mad, you, you go on Pirate Bay and check it out. Yeah, man. Um, well, I, um, luckily I don't have time to get that mad but that is of course the line that oh we can't leave now or else that would be a precipitous withdrawal and then you know something bad might happen david petraeus had the courage for the first time in his life if you can call it courage to come out with a straight face and say well the taliban are getting the better end of this deal but that's because he personally lost the war it's all his fault how dare he come out and say oh boo-hoo we can't leave now let it be his son that goes over there and has to eat a bullet for that thing you know has david petraeus ever put his own life at risk it ever once in his four-star life no the guy's a liar and a scumbag and a cheat who betrayed his wife and betrayed this country and gave his mistress above top secret clearance uh, information, uh, stuff that any other person would have gone to the penitentiary for years and years and years for leaking, including discussions between him and the president. Stuff that was above top secret and he gave it to some whore 
in exchange for her turning tricks for him. This guy is scum. And 22 of his men who served under him in Iraq and in Afghanistan shoot themselves in the mouth every day. 22. Because of him. Because of his lies and his failure. And he wants to get up here and pretend like none of us remember that he doubled and lost the Iraq war. Doubled and lost the Afghan war. Began. Supported America's war in Libya for Al-Qaeda in Iraq in Libya. Began the project that John Brennan finished of backing Al-Qaeda in Syria until it turned into the Islamic State. He's a failure and a liar and a traitor. And he has the nerve to come open his big mouth and go, yeah, well, it's just like on that TV show, Homeland. If we ever leave, something bad will happen. America should leave and leave Petraeus behind in Afghanistan. Let him go and do this you know, counterinsurgency, clear, hold, build, scam on his own and see how well he works out over there. He's perfectly happy to send everybody else's boy to kill and die for nothing. It's an absolute disgrace. Next question is about Iran and the coronavirus. And um, I actually have a supporter who is a, um, his family's Iranian. He's a doctor. And he said that you know, his family over there is saying that things are you know, really bad. Um, the question here is with Iran getting basically devastated by the coronavirus. Uh, this is Donkey Kong 5 asking the question, yeah. is there any way that the United States would seek to make peace or extend an olive branch? No. I mean, I'm really sorry to say that just the very worst hawks are in charge of our Iran policy. But look at the counterfactual. Donald Trump picked up the phone. He called Kim in North Korea and says, is there anything I can do for you to help you with this crisis? It's the perfect opportunity to kill our adversaries with kindness. Not that Iran is any threat to America. Not that Iran has ever done anything to us other than overthrow the government that we foisted on them back in 1953. Ronald Reagan sold the missiles just a couple of years after their righteous revolution against the fascist dictatorship that America had foisted on them. And not that the Ayatollah was righteous, but the people of Iran absolutely had the right to, to overthrow the Shah. And then Reagan turned right around and sold missiles to the Ayatollah. And that was when I was in second grade. So, um, but we still have to have a cold war with them now, 40 years later. And some want to say, well, no, because Iran is responsible for all these deaths in Iraq War II. But that's just a lie. And we debunked it at the time. What they do when they say that, they're talking about, first of all, they're talking about 500 out of 4,500 Americans that died in Iraq War II. 4,000 of them died fighting the Sunni-based insurgency on behalf of the Ayatollah's men in the Supreme Islamic Council, the Dawah Party, the, the uh, Islamic Council's Bada Brigade, and yes, including Muqtada al-Sadr and his Mahdi army. They were the three major parts of the United Iraqi Alliance that America fought that whole war for. And then 
David Petraeus, who had armed up and trained the Sunni insurgents in Mosul before he turned around and trained up the Shia Badr Brigade to be the Iraqi army to unleash against them. He decided when he launched his surge in 2007 that the enemy wasn't the Sunni insurgency anymore. We're going to bribe them into not fighting us anymore. And now we're going to turn our ire on who? Muqtad al-Sadr and the Mahdi army. Well, guess what? Muqtad al-Sadr and the Mahdi army, they were the Iraqi Shia who had not fled to Iran. Skiri and Dawa had been living in Iran since 1980 when Jimmy Carter had Saddam Hussein invade Iran. They took Iran's side and had been living there all along for 30 years until they came into Iraq to inherit the whirlwind that George Bush, you know, well, that's the wrong term for it, to inherit the state that George Bush handed to them on a golden platter, in the words of the king of Saudi Arabia. And then what do they do? They turned on Muqtada al-Sadr, who was the nationalist. He was a Shiite, but he was a nationalist and said, no, we should oppose Iranian and American influence. And America decided that, no, we would rather back the guys who were also backed by Iran on the gamble that they're going to need us, our money and our weapons, more than they're going to need the Iranians, their co-religionist and neighbors next door. Well, that was just not true, and it did not play out that way, and America lost. As soon as America was done winning that war for the Shia, you'll remember that Maliki said, sign here, Bush, you have to go. And don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Thanks for winning the war for me. Now you can beat it because we don't need you. We're the super majority and we're allies with our co-religionists next door. So get the hell out. They gambled and lost. And Petraeus, what did he do? He sent Danny Sherson, our friend uh, Major Sherson, and his boys sent them to East Baghdad to fight the Shia. And they died doing so. Danny lost his guys over there, including, you know, his almost adopted son. He was a mentor and a father figure to this kid, Alex, who got blown to pieces by an IED fighting in a neighborhood where he should have never been fighting against the guys that we were fighting the whole war for. And then they want to say that every time a Shiite that we were attacking without reason defended himself from us that that was the Iranians who did it. Because get it? Shia means Iran. Even though these were the guys we were backing in the war. And so they just lie. They just lie. And they just pretend that, yes, every time a bomb went off in Shiistan, that was an Iranian bomb. It's not an IED anymore. It's an EFP. An explosively formed penetrator, which means it has a copper core and is, is actually designed by the IRA... And that was where Hezbollah in Lebanon got the idea, was from the IRA. And it was Lebanese Hezbollah that gave the tech to the Iraqi Shia, but gave it to who? The Iraqi Shia, not the Iranians. There's no proof at all, ever, not one scrap of evidence that a single one of those goddamn things came from Iran. They were made in Iraq by Iraqis. And the Americans found the machine shops where they were making them over and over and over again. And all you got to do is just Google my name and EFPs and you'll find the debunking of this lie over and over and over again. And Phil Giraldi debunked it at length. Of course, the great Gareth Porter led the way on all of this stuff. And we debunked all these lies in real time. 
500 Americans died fighting the Shia, not fighting Iran. That was just a lie. They were fighting for Iran's best friends, the Bada Brigade. When they see the Iraqi army, that's the Bada Brigade that Donald Rumsfeld and David Petraeus built and turned into the Iraqi army. And so they just lie. So when was the last time America was attacked by Iran? Never. The Kobar Towers attack of 1996, that was Al-Qaeda that did that. Bin Laden took credit for it. And plus, it's a proven fact that he did it. Gareth Porter, again, led the way on that. But Secretary of Defense William Perry said so at the time. And bin Laden took credit for it in his declaration of war against us in 1996. And he also took credit for it to Abdelbari Atwan, the journalist from um, Al-Arabi, the newspaper in um, in London, uh, and, and wrote about it in his book, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda and in The Guardian, that bin Laden explained how he did it and everything. That he did the Kobar Towers attack, killed 19 American airmen. Imagine that. Bin Laden killing American airmen stationed in Saudi Arabia for the purposes of bombing Iraq. That was the number one reason that Al-Qaeda went to war against the United States. Number one reason on the list. And that was who did it. And the rest of the time, what do they accuse Iran of? They hardly even have any specific allegations. They just say Iran is the greatest sponsor of terrorism in the world. Well, that's a lie. America is the greatest state sponsor of terrorism in the world in alliance with the Saudis. They're the ones who back Al-Qaeda. And when they're not knocking our towers down, Bill Clinton and George Bush and Barack Obama are using them against their adversaries, the Shia. And, you know, uh, Bush started backing them in 2006 and 7. That's the famous Seymour Hersh article, the redirection. America tilting back toward the Saudis, but they don't have an army. Their only army are Al-Qaeda suicide bomber shock troops. So that's whose side that Bush took. And that's the explanation for why Obama backed Al-Qaeda in Libya and especially in Syria. It's not because he was a secret Muslim terrorist born in Kenya. It's because he was George W. Bush. And that's what America does. We back Al-Qaeda in league with the Saudis. 3,000 dead American civilians and 4,000 dead American soldiers notwithstanding. And then these guys want to turn around and say that the biggest problem in the region is Iran when they haven't done a thing to us. And they never were making nuclear weapons. Another lie that me and a lot of other people have debunked for years and years and years. That they were ever making nuclear weapons. And here, you know, Obama finally signed a deal with them to prove that beyond any reasonable doubt in order to allay that, you know, greatest tension between us about their nuclear program. And Donald Trump comes in and cancels the deal. And reinstitutes all these sanctions against them, a full-scale economic war, maximum pressure, they call it, in order to destabilize the country and to try to provoke a revolution, which you notice has not succeeded. All they succeeded in doing is making innocent people suffer. And then, so yeah, here we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and Iranians are dropping like flies, and the Americans have them under total blockade. And America threatens to sanction any company that trades with them. We have sanctions on their central bank. And we threaten to sanction any company in the world that will trade with them. And so even though Pompeo says, well, we don't have sanctions on medicine. The sanctions don't have to specifically be on medicine to keep the medicine out of the hands of the Iranians. Because what happens is that the shipping companies just won't go there. They won't bring them anything. They won't sell them corn on the cob. They won't sell them a damn thing. They can't even, they don't even want to mess with it because 
I mean, imagine you run a multi-billion dollar global corporation, some shipping firm. You're going to pick a fight with the U.S. Treasury who can take everything from you with a stroke of a pen? Nope. You just figure out someone else to trade with instead. And so these people are being deprived to death right in the middle of a giant pandemic. Whereas, let's say there was no such thing as Israel or the Israel lobby or the neoconservative movement in the United States of America. And we just had our own policy. And say, for example, instead of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or some devil like that, let's say we just had the average schmuck as president of the United States. I don't know, your little brother, a random guy off the street, the lady behind the counter at the gift shop, at the hospital, whoever. Put them in charge and say, listen, we've had this problem, this, this outstanding kind of enmity with Iran for these 40 years, and now we're in the middle of a global pandemic when they need our help. Why not help them? Why not kill them with kindness? Why not do what is obviously the one and only right thing to do? Drop all sanctions. Offer an olive branch. What can we do to help you? You need medicine? You need ventilators and masks? It's a global market. Let's ramp up production. Let's do everything we can to help these people. Again, it's Donald Trump's instinct. Let's give me the phone. I'm going to call Kim. Hey, Kim, it's Donald Trump. Is there anything we can do for you to help? Now, that didn't seem to go very far yet. And, and Lord knows, you know, the department's probably intervened to quash that as best they could. But the spirit is there. The obvious answer is right there. If Donald Trump, of all people, can think, hey, I know, this could be an opportunity to help heal our rift with North Korea... Well, then he can think the same thing about Iran and the same thing about Venezuela and the same thing about any country that they claim we have to be the enemies of. It's just crazy that we continue on this way. And especially when you count it up, we spend a trillion dollars a year on just maintaining the world empire, plus another six and a half, almost seven trillion dollars on the wars since 2001. Pete, that's 27 trillion dollars. That America has just pissed away and got absolutely nothing out of it. And now look at us fighting over where are we going to get enough hospital beds for the peak of this epidemic hitting our country? Where are we going to get enough masks and rubber gowns for our nurses and doctors who are caring for the sick and dying? And we can't even take care of ourselves because we let the Bushes and the Clintons destroy everything. And now we have a guy whose fault it's not. He's not married to Bill Clinton. He's not George Bush's brother. He never even was a governor, much less a senator who voted for this stuff like Joe Biden voted for every bit of it. Donald Trump, and he's the biggest flipper flopper in the world. He could turn around and praise the Ayatollah. You know what I like about the Ayatollah? Lots of things. I like his robe. I like his hat. I like the way he gets things done. And then go over there and make friends, man. Call him up on Skype video and make friends. Richard Nixon shook hands with Mao Zedong, the greatest killer in all of human history. Mao killed as many people as Hitler and Stalin combined. He was quantitatively the single worst human who ever existed. 
And Kissinger and Nixon went over there and said it'd be better to be friends than enemies. Put her there, pal. Let's work things out. And that was the right thing to do. And it's been the best thing for the people of China who at that point were living like cavemen who were resorting to cannibalism and raiding each other's villages and stealing and kidnapping and eating each other's children because they were starving to death by the tens of millions. And America helped put a stop to that by being magnanimous, by saying, you know what, what have we got to lose? And by the way, who cares if we lost Vietnam, if we're friends with the Chinese now? And what a great way to lord it over the Russians if we can split the Chinese away from them and exploit their divisions in the communist world and whatever. They found reasons why it was good for us and Lord knows it was good for them. And think of the counterfactual. If we just kept up a cold war with China this whole time as long as that red flag's flying. And you know how much chaos that would have been. We'd have been at war with them by now for real. And so this is just crazy. It's just crazy. This crisis goes to show just how unnecessary this entire empire has been. And it also goes to show just how vast are our opportunities to do the right thing and to make things better starting right now. And any decent person sitting at that desk, this is what they would do. Pick up the phone, tell Benjamin Netanyahu to go to hell. America has its own Iran policy again and it's going to be like this now. And what are you going to do about it? I have a question here from Particle Peace, but I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, what do you think is going on with Trump sending ships towards Venezuela? Man, I really don't know. I'm really worried about it. I mean, if they think they can get away with some kind of Panama type, short quick invasion they're completely nuts but a year ago they convinced trump that if we just announce guaido as the president the military will change sides to him and he will be the president and it'll be easy and trump fell for that even though that was obviously stupid and wrong anybody who knew anything about it at all could have told you that was never gonna fly and they tried it anyway and so whether pompeo and the rest of these kooks can convince trump that don't worry it'll be easy let's do this I really don't know. I like to think they're just bluffing. Um, it's hard to imagine what Donald Trump's mindset is. I mean, on one hand, I think, thank goodness, he's a scaredy cat. You know, he's backed down from confrontation with Iran a couple of times now. And and he basically, you know, people were worried that we we're going to attack Venezuela a year ago. And I said, nah, come on. They told him it was going to be easy. Once it failed, he's not going to triple down. He's not going to send the Marines. And the Marines have got to be telling him, man, we don't want to invade Venezuela. Are you crazy? I mean, this is not Panama. These people can defend themselves, and there's no way in the world that they're going to side with us. It's just not going to happen. You know, the revolution a year ago was outside of the presidential palace, facing out, protecting the president from the foreign coup. And this guy, Guaido, is on the record publicly calling for the American military to attack his country, to put him in power repeatedly. So he's a traitor to his country, a traitor to the people of Venezuela. You know, I forgot if I'm paraphrasing this from somebody else or if I was the one who came up with this or what. It must have been one of mine because it's kind of stupid, but 
I didn't want to claim credit for it if I'm really copying somebody else. But imagine if Hillary had said that, look, the Russians stole the election from me in 2016. And so it's not fair that Trump's the president. And so I'm calling on China to invade Washington, D.C. to put me on my rightful throne. What American, what Hillary Clinton supporter would have supported that? Nobody. Nobody. She would be howled off the stage if not hunted down and hanged for that. The hatred of her and her name would never die. Well, that's what Guaido did. Call for the Americans to invade and overthrow the government of his country to install him from power. That makes him the most infamous traitor as bad as Benedict Arnold. His name will forever go down in history as a traitor to the people of Venezuela, no matter who rules that country. And now a year after that, they think they're going to put him in power still, somehow, with violence? It's never going to work. But I just don't know if anyone is around who can explain that to Donald Trump. We cannot do this. It will not work. It will be an absolute disaster. And, you know, right now the Navy's sick. I mean, I don't know how many of these ships don't have coronavirus on them. You know, this ought to be a time to just call it quits on this entire empire and just let things rest. You know, what's funny is I just went on this whole rant about how Iran has never really attacked us or done anything to us. Well, no one's even accused Venezuela of doing anything to us. They're now scraping at the bottom of the barrel looking for the drug war, trying to say America's cocaine addiction is because of Venezuela. Well, first of all, it's a bunch of rich Republicans who are the only ones who can afford to do cocaine all day anyway. We all know who are the cokeheads. It's the GOP and their voters. It's, you know, it's not local bums and schlubs and working class people doing cocaine. They're doing meth and and smoking weed and, and, you know, shooting heroin. The cocaine is going up the nose of the people in the skyscrapers. The corporate chieftains and the property owners and the country club Republicans. Maybe not the born-agains, but the rich ones who laugh and use the born-agains are the ones who are the consumers of cocaine in this country. Let's get that out of the way first. And then secondly, America gets all their cocaine from loyal ally Colombia. Ruled by American right-wing sock puppets. Not from Venezuela. Give me a break. Oh, and the rest of it comes from Honduras, where Hillary Clinton supported the right-wing coup there. In fact, Obama denounced it, and Hillary said, shut up, Obama, we support this coup. And he said, okay, yes, ma'am, and supported the coup. And that's where all the, the worst drug problems in the Western Hemisphere are coming from right now. And the heroin, of course, is all coming from Mexico. They want to try to pin drug problems on Venezuela. That's as close as you can get to a threat that they sell cocaine to willing customers, Republican customers in this country who want to buy and consume those drugs. Otherwise, there's no pretension that this country's any threat to us, that they would ever threaten to do anything to us, much less actually follow through. And we all know what this is about. Stealing. Simple as that. John Bolton said it himself, uh, you know, one year ago. Because what we want to do is put this guy in power there and then turn uh, uh, Venezuela's oil supplies over to American corporations. 
In other words, so that we can take the oil and keep the money too. Stealing. We're going to kill people and steal the things that they own. Because that's who we are and that's what we're about. We're just mercenaries, thieves. It's sickening. And everybody knows that. See if you can find anyone in the world who thinks America's beef with Venezuela has anything to do with give me that oil or I'll kill you. There is no other explanation for it. I don't even know if you could find a Republican voter dumb enough to think that this is about stopping the supply of cocaine coming to this country. For God's sake, give me a break. Do you think this has anything to do with the uh, Saudi-Russian oil battle right now? Possibly. That's a good question. You know, um, when they did the coup of 2002, that was because the NSA overheard Saddam Hussein on the phone with Gaddafi saying, hey, let's raise the oil price. And they said, well, we can't invade Iraq for another half a year here. We're not ready yet. But we could do a coup in Venezuela. And that was why they did it, was because they were trying to raise the price at a time when America was trying to lower it. And so whether this is the opposite, they want to try to take control of Venezuelan oil so that they can take those supplies off the market and drive the price up in order to prop up Texas uh, frackers and North Dakota shale refiners and whatever. Sure. You know, why not? They just had a meeting with, uh, you know, Trump brokered a meeting between the Saudis and the Russians the other day to try to get them to agree to ramp down production to jack up the price, which is not going to work. I mean, they're in the middle of a price war, but we have the most enormous downward pressure on fuel sales and fuel prices right now imaginable. We've got Four out of seven billion earthlings locked down right now, traveling nowhere. You know, my truck's got full tanks of gas and they're not getting burned. They're just sitting. And same for everybody else. And so the demand for oil has just plummeted. And that goes for the ships, you know, in international trade and all the automobiles and, you know, for, I don't know exactly, you know, in terms of, the gasoline and, you know, oil that's pumped for um, for keeping the lights on in certain places. But, uh, you know, probably not too much change there. But otherwise, massive downward pressure on on fuel prices right now. So it may not do any good anyway. They might invade Venezuela, take whatever's left of whatever Venezuela is able to even get to market at this point and take that off the market. And that might not do any good at all. As far as propping up the price. But would they try it for that reason? Yeah, sure. (laughs) While you were saying all that, all I could think of was a interview that I did with Gary Chartier recently talking about how we really need to abandon the term capitalism because whenever you go into other countries, people interpret capitalism as what you just described. Right. That's a great point. And listen, we just ran an article like that by Per Byland um, from the Mises Institute, a very extremely pure, laissez-faire Austrian school economist. And this has been Sheldon's argument for a long time, too. Sheldon Richmond's argument is that we should not call it capitalism because we understand that to mean an economic system where the means of production are in private hands um, by property owners. And we take that to mean laissez-faire. 
but capitalism to many other people, it doesn't mean that at all. It means a system of state power where the capitalists rule with force. And we know what that looks like. It looks like this. Now, to us libertarians, we go, well, but that's state capitalism. That's crony capitalism. That's fascism, really, as Robert Higgs calls it. It's participatory fascism. We still have democratic elections. We don't have uh, Mussolini for life. Um, we don't have, well, we sort of, kind of, but not exactly do we have, you know, black shirts that work for the political party in power going around beating everybody up for opposing them and that kind of thing. Um, although the cops will kill you at a moment's notice and get away with it every single time, we, and they know that. We might, ha we might have that with the coronavirus, actually. Yeah, I mean, things are certainly getting, you know, and you got the liberals all day saying what's wrong with Trump is that he's literally Hitler and he's not doing enough to seize control over the means of production. We want the Defense Preparedness Act invoked against every company in America and for all their decisions to be made by the executive branch for now on. Um, and if that's what the left wants, that's the opposition. And what they want is for the Republicans to seize more and more power. Well, guess what? The Republicans aren't going to resist for long. <laughs> when I don't know why Trump hasn't invoked it to the absolute nth degree so far, but it's coming. And... And yeah, but so we argue then that, you know, correctly, that the opposite of our current system is not to move to the left to Bernie Sanders socialism. The opposite of our current system would be laissez-faire. The opposite of our current system would be free market capitalism. But the problem is, and listen, I mean, when liberals use the word capitalism, they don't just mean private profits. They mean a system where capitalists rule America capitalists pick who sits in Congress and capitalists choose what policies that they pursue. I mean, in that sense, you could look at somebody like Dianne Feinstein and say, well, see, she's not actually a human being at all. She is a representative of her husband's corporation. And she is there to secure his corporation's interests. That's all. You know, there's an old joke, right, about all the members of Congress should be forced to wear the corporate logos of their sponsors all over their clothes like NASCAR drivers because they don't represent the people of their district. They represent, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi explains to Anakin in episode two, they represent the interests of the people who finance their campaigns. I know, not another lecture on the economics of politics, but that's what it is. It's exactly what it is. And... um. So now for me, I kind of like using the term because if it causes confusion, good. That's an opportunity to clear things up like I just did, right? There, these words do mean different things to different people, but let's talk about that. And then, you know, is Chartier and, and, and Richmond and Byland correct that we should probably focus on market-based economics and laissez-faire and whatever and using other terms to differentiate so that people don't get it too confused? That's acceptable to me. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not necessarily for abandoning the term altogether, but it really does have different definitions. It means totally different things to people. And I am absolutely not for a system where capitalists rule the country. Um, you know, I'm, I'm for no one ruling the country at all. And my libertarianism is not an apologia for business. It's... Uh, you know, support for an economic system 
of capitalism that includes profit and loss for even the biggest and most powerful corporations. If they make bad decisions, they must be made to pay the consequences and lose what they've got. And instead, we live in a bailout state, a warfare, welfare, bailout state where, you know, the welfare, your $1,200 check, that's your bribe so that you don't overthrow the government for stealing trillions of dollars from all of us to give to the very most powerful, most connected elite. And it should be that the airlines and the banks and all the biggest corporations who are receiving these bailouts now, they should all be made to fail. And they should all have to go to bankruptcy court and let entrepreneurs who can make good bets buy up their assets at auction and get started all over again. And, you know, I interviewed David Stockman last week about this stuff. And he was Reagan's budget director. He's a pure capitalist kind of a guy. And his thing is just like mine. Let them crash. Let them burn. Don't give a damn about any one businessman or any one CEO or any one corporation. What we are for is a system of profit and loss because that is the best way to distribute goods and services to the people who need them the most. That's just science, man. That's just how it is. The last thing in the world you want, whether you're left or right or anything, unless you're in on it. The last thing in the world that you want is to see companies that should have failed propped up because that just means that they're going to continue making bad decisions at all of our expense, which, I mean, can you sum up the 20th century better than that? What did we get after the dot-com crash of 2000? A giant housing bubble. And then what did we get after that? A giant stock market and everything bubble. And now that's popped. It was going to crash anyway, and the coronavirus sure saw to that. But, you know, it's a long way down from the bubble we've been riding on. And, you know, nobody knows where the bottom of this thing is. And then what do they do? Immediately, they start creating trillions and trillions more dollars, lower interest rates all the way to zero, and guarantee to create all the same worst distortions, which means that we're going to have to have another bailout in 10 years, another collapse and another bailout. You know, there's a popular tweet. I've seen it for days in a row being retweeted on Twitter. I admit I kind of fell off the wagon. I've been looking at Twitter a little bit lately, um, though not tweeting. Um, and I see that, oh, yeah, if capitalism's so great, how come it has to be bailed out every 10 years? Well, that's a good question. The answer is that Ludwig von Mises figured out the answer 100 years ago in the theory of money and credit. It's not the business cycle. It's the government money cycle. The bad monetary policy cycle, artificially low interest rates and bank credit expansion, the counterfeiting of new money beyond the rate at which new wealth is being created leads to these bubbles and distortions that lead to these very real crashes. That's the answer. And the answer's been available for a hundred years. You'd have to be a liberal to think that there's no answer to that other than just capitalism is bad. I guess we ought to let Bernie Sanders decide where all the resources should go and at what price now. Because to them, this is laissez-faire and it hasn't worked. Even though we all know, we're all taught in school that they gave up laissez-faire in the 20s. And in the 30s, Herbert Hoover said, forget that, we need a new deal. And, and then Roosevelt came in and just tripled down on what Hoover had already started. 
Well, if we're living in the decades and decades after that, then yeah, it couldn't possibly be the laissez-faire free market that's got us into this mess. One way or the other, even the liberals must concede that it's our quasi-free market. Our mixed economy, full of public-private partnerships, that has brought us to this. And the libertarians, the Austrian school, are the only ones who have the proper explanation for this. It's because of the central bank, because of the commissar of the interest rate, who always holds it artificially low and allows the banks, licenses the banks to engage in the fraud of new credit creation and loaning out money that they never had and and expanding the money supply in that way. It doesn't just lead to price inflation across the board. It leads to massive bubbles in certain sectors that cause these terrible crashes and and then all along giving capitalism a bad name. Just like in 2008, they pretended that George Bush had been Ron Paul. I said, oh, yeah, see what laissez-faire, free market, deregulated capitalism gets us? But George W. Bush was a Bush, not a Paul. He hadn't deregulated a damn thing other than the amount of fraud that Wall Street was allowed to commit under law. Well, that's crime. That's, you know, just because a politician is aiding and abetting crime doesn't mean it's not a crime. That's clearly crime. You know, Dr. Paul, the only libertarian in Congress at the time... He voted against the repeal of Glass-Steagall that Joe Biden and Phil Graham engineered. And he said, this is the wrong thing to do. We have this massive gambling casino on Wall Street. And all this repeal does is say that now they can gamble with the American people's deposits. Instead of only being allowed to gamble with certain money that, you know, designated as separate from the deposits of regular customers of the bank... Um, we're now going to have this system where they can gamble away everybody's savings and screw everybody. And Ron Paul said we absolutely should repeal Glass-Steagall after we repeal the Federal Reserve Act, after we repeal every law or regulation that allows for a single bank to ever get bailed out. And only then do we get around to getting rid of the regulation that's preventing them from screwing the American people under the otherwise... um, you know, ceteris paribus current system that is not going away. And so that's, you know, that ought to show you right there. Ron Paul was against deregulating the banks. Yeah. In that instance, he absolutely was because he recognized the much greater fraud backing up the entire system. And the fact that it's Mr. Pure Capitalism Goldbug who was onto that while every liberal who supposedly is anti-capitalism and whatever had no clue ought to be a clue. The Austrian school, they're the only ones who are right about this stuff. You know, whenever I interview Mark Thornton or Bob Murphy or, you know, any of the other or, or, or um, David Stockman 
or any of the other Austrian school economists who explain about the boom-bust cycle, I always try to begin it. That listen up, anti-war audience who aren't libertarians, you know, a lot of liberals and conservatives and whoever listen to this show, you don't have to agree with us about anything else. You don't have to agree with us about the welfare state. You don't have to agree with us about the regulatory state. You don't have to agree with us about the shape of anything in the past, the future to come, or any other thing. But you have to admit that Mises and Rothbard and Murphy are right. This is what causes the boom and the bust. This is the reason for the so-called business cycle. It's the government's phony monetary policy. As simple as that. You can't deny it. That's the answer. The only way to deny it is to remain ignorant of the explanation. I think we can end it there. Uh, Do you want to close this out? Yeah, let me just say that, um, you know, I... um, I feel bad for everybody going through this crisis. I know that I don't know the vast majority of my listeners. I've been in contact with a great many of you over the time. You email me and we hang out in the Reddit room together and various chat rooms and comment sections and Facebook and Twitter and so forth over the years. Familiar with a lot of your internet names and and less so, but to a, to a certain degree, your real names too. And I know that there are a lot of you out there that I've never met, never really talked to in any um, you know, personal way online or any other thing, but who were out there listening and, and listening regularly. And um, I know it's a real hard time for people. And I know that there are a lot of people who really don't have anyone and may be feeling especially alone right now. But I think that... Um, you know, the deal is we all just need to hang in there. This thing is not going to last too much longer. They're going to come up with better and better treatments um, for the disease. Eventually, they will have a vaccine for it. Eventually, the summer sun's going to come out, and we'll see whether that does any good or not. But I'm hopeful. And so I don't want anybody to despair too badly or give up. Um, You know, if you don't have people, reach out and find some. You know, make some of your own. And, and, And you know what? If you do have the ability to help other people then take time to recognize that there are other people out there who could really use a hand and see what you can do to try to figure out how to help them. You know, libertarians, we hate the state. We absolutely hate them extending their controls over us in order to have things their way. And yet the American people continue to be the demand for their supply. And so it should be up to us from the very bottom level up to to short circuit that to take care of each other so that people don't feel like they need the state to intervene in their lives because their community has their back you know their society has their back and so as you all know some of you are in this boat where you don't have the money to prepare you don't have a stock of soup and water and everything you're going to need to survive this time and you don't know how you're going to get it Um, and there are others of you out there who absolutely do have the ability to help. So you know what? Reach out and offer if you can and and see what you can do to help each other. After all, just like the commies say, we want to wither the state away. I don't think stopping at totalitarian dictatorship is a very good path to anarchy. We need to wither that some bitch. We need to oppose it. We need to refuse to be the demand for what they're supplying from security services on down. But that also means 
that we need to supply what each other need for each other so that our neighbors don't need them either. And that's, right, the agorist way. That's the way to make them truly obsolete is to handle these problems ourselves for each other the best that we can. And so, you know, I hope everybody listening will do your best to hang in there and to help other people around you to do the same as well. And that's about it. And other than thank you, Pete, for hanging out here with me tonight. Oh, I, I love it, man. I love talking about this stuff. So have a good evening. Cool deal. Thank you, man. Night, guys. <laughs>